This morning we're going to continue our series entitled Living in Exile, which is a walk through the letter of 1 Peter. And I want to begin first thing this morning by actually reading our passage. So I am going to be that annoying pastor who asks you to stand one more time as we honor the reading of God's Word. You didn't know you were going to get exercise this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 18 through 22 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. You can be seated. You know, in the Bible, there are some difficult verses. There are some parts that are confusing and hotly debated. And then there is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. These may be the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament. Check out these quotes I found in my study. Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation, he said this about these verses. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers to ever live, he had this to say, This passage nobody understands, though some think they do. It is for our good to be made to feel that we do not know everything. Whew. But you know, we have something today that Luther and Spurgeon did not have, and that is the Internet. Yes, so don't you worry. I spent hours Googling all the answers I read multiple Wikipedia articles and Facebook posts, and so I've got it all figured out. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, you know, I actually think Spurgeon made a really good point when he said it is for our good to be made to feel that we don't know everything. It's good sometimes to realize you're dumb. <laughs> it is. It's good sometimes. We need to be humble. We need to be reminded that we don't have all the answers. You know, this book was written 2,000 years ago, so some things get lost in cultural translation. We also know that we're not God. So there are some passages of the Bible that are a little less clear that we're going to hold on to a little more loosely till we get to heaven and we'll ask all our questions, okay? But nevertheless, today we are going to give our, this passage our best shot, okay? And if I'm wrong, if I say something that you disagree with, here's what you can do. It's very effective. Write it all out. In a big long email, get it all, <laughs> get it all off your chest, get all your complaints out, okay? And then instead of hitting sin, just hit delete, all right? And that it'll make you feel so much better. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But we are going to break this passage down. I will tell you what I think, but I will do so with attempted humility, uh, welcoming the opinions of those who are much wiser than I. Just save it for after the sermon. Um, but before we dig in. As I always say, we've got to get to the context. Despite the confusing details here, what is Peter trying to do? 
He's not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to start a debate. He's actually trying to make a point. And here's the big point of the message. If we could boil it all down in this one sentence, here's what I think Peter's saying. It's this. Christ's victory in our suffering, in suffering, is the guarantee of our victory in suffering. Christ's victory in suffering is the guarantee of our victory in suffering. This passage is all about encouraging us in suffering. Suffering is a part of life. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen, broken, post-Genesis 3 world. People get sick and die. Natural disasters happen. People sin and mistreat us. And as a result, we experience pain and suffering. Other times, we, we suffer because of our own foolishness. We sin and we face the consequences. We, we do things we shouldn't and we have to pay the price for it. But as Christians, there's another kind of suffering. The Bible makes clear that as followers of Jesus, we may at times suffer for him. This is called persecution, and this is the kind of suffering that the people Peter wrote to were experiencing. And, and that's why Peter told them from the very beginning that, hey, you're exiles. You're strangers. You're sojourners. You're outsiders in the world you live in. And this exile, it's not by accident. No, it's actually a part of God's plan so that you can stand out and so that you can glorify God to those around you. But being in exile also brought suffering and difficulty. So a lot of what Peter wrote here was to encourage believers in suffering and explain how to live out their faith in that. And even though we may not experience persecution today in Olathe, Kansas, we do sense that there's this growing disparity between what we believe as Christians and what the world believes. And we also experience various kinds of suffering in our life. So the message for these first century believers and the message today for us is the same. Christ's victory in suffering is the guarantee of our victory in suffering. Because of what Jesus did, 2,000 years ago, we don't have to fear or worry about suffering and difficulty. Despite what we may face, we have victory in Jesus through and in suffering. So let's walk through this passage, break it all down. I'm going to show you the two spots that we're going to wrestle with a little bit. And then we're going to end with some application points. So look with me again at verse 18. He says, For Christ... Also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this is a fantastic verse. This is one of those that you need to have memorized because it so clearly lays out the gospel. In fact, let me give you five important truths from this one verse we learn about why the gospel is good news. First, we learn from this verse the gospel is good news because Jesus died for sins. Jesus did not die on the cross by accident or coincidence. It wasn't some kind of plan B. No, he died according to the predestined plan of God. God sent his own son to the earth to become a man and to die for sins. Meaning on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. In other words, the cross wasn't just physically painful for Jesus or the crown of thorns and the whips and the hanging. But it was also spiritually painful as God poured out his judgment and wrath against all sin for all people, for all time. It was poured out on Jesus. And that's what the word atonement means. Jesus atoned for our sins by paying the debt for them. Second, this verse tells us the gospel's good news because Jesus suffered once for sins. 
what Jesus did on the cross, it was sufficient. It was complete. When he died, he paid the price for all sins, for all of God's people. That means there's no one who is beyond God's saving grace. No one who's too bad or too far gone, who has lived too much of a terrible life, or has made too many mistakes. There is no one who, could, who are, is too far from God's grace. Old Testament saints, when they sinned, they had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice to try to find atonement for their sins. But he tells us here that Jesus died once and for all. That means there is nothing left for you or for me to do but to accept what's already been done. Third, this verse tells us the gospel is good news because the righteous died for the unrighteous. That first category, righteous, that's Jesus. Second category, unrighteous, that's us. Jesus was perfect. We're not. We're sinners. And yet on the cross, there was a miraculous switch that took place. And this is the idea of what's called substitutionary atonement. Big word. Makes you sound smart. But it's got a really simple meaning. That word substitution, think about it, just means Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. The wrath and judgment of God that you and me, that we deserved for our sins, was not put on you. Instead, it was put on Jesus in our place. The righteous died for the unrighteous. Fourth, this verse tells us the gospel is good news because Jesus did this that he might bring us to God. Jesus died so that we could have a relationship with God. You see, what happened is when we sin, we break our relationship with him. But through the death on the cross, death on the cross by Jesus, our sin has been taken away. And we now have access to God. The veil has been torn. And we don't come into his presence saying, please, let me in. If I, did I do enough good stuff? You, you think I'm good enough, God? I mean, I, I tried really hard. No. We go in accepted as we are as sons and daughters of a king. And we can have a relationship with our creator through Jesus and fifth, this verse tells us the gospel's good news because Jesus was made alive in the spirit. Jesus died, but he did not remain dead. On the third day, his body was resurrected, and he declared victory over sin, death, hell, and Satan himself. This is so important because the empty tomb is the guarantee of our salvation. It means Jesus was who he said he was. He did what he said he'd do, and we can be who he's called us to be. And you see all of that in one verse. Isn't that amazing? But here's Peter's main point with this verse. Here's what he's saying. It's this. Jesus suffered too. Your suffering is terrible. We don't like it. But it's not unexpected. It's actually the pattern that Jesus laid out. Jesus also suffered, and he suffered much worse than we ever will. He was tortured and murdered by the people he created. He was forsaken by his own father, and he bore the full weight of his anger towards sin. And he told us that, hey, if you follow me, you're going to suffer too. But here's the deal. Suffering never has the last word. Even though Jesus suffered in unspeakable ways, his suffering was actually the means to his victory. And this is crazy. Think about this. This is the paradox of the cross. The very means used to murder the Messiah became the very means of our salvation. His condemnation gave us freedom. His death gave us life. As the song says, a cross meant to kill is my victory. Let's keep going in verse 19. It says, Jesus in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. All right, now sound the alarms. 
Here we go. This is the first spot. It's kind of like, well, what's going on here? We've got to wrestle with this a little bit. What in the world does Peter mean about Jesus proclaiming to spirits in prison? Well, there's really three questions we must answer here. Number one, where did Jesus go? Number two, what did he do? And number three, who are the spirits in prison? And there's three general views on this verse. Let me break it down for you. The first verse is that between the death, or sorry, the first view is that between the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus actually went down to hell. Some say that he preached a second chance for people to be saved. Some say he fought the devil and took back the keys to the kingdom. Some say he actually went and burned there so as to fully experience God's judgment. And a big part of the reason this view is believed is because of what's called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is this really old statement of faith that Christians have used for a long time. Some of you may have grown up in a church where you recited the Apostles' Creed. Do you remember what it says? It says, he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. And at some point in Christian history, people took that phrase and they, they ran with it. And they made up a lot of kind of fanciful stories. The reality is the Bible does not teach that Jesus went to hell when he died. And there's a good argument that the Apostles' Creed does not mean it in that way. So I'm, I'm good with that, Apostles' Creed. The better interpretation of the creed is that he descended not to hell but to death. In other words, he, he fully died and went down into the grave. So again, Jesus did not go to hell. There was no wrestling match with the devil, as cool as that might have been. Remember what he told the thief on the cross? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. He cried out to God. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I believe when Jesus died, he went to heaven to be with God until he was reunited with his resurrected body. So I'm going to take a hard pass on that first view, okay? Second view. Second view is that when Noah was building the ark back in the day, as he preached, it was actually Jesus preaching through him by his spirit. So these spirits in prison are people who lived back then, died in the flood, and are now in hell. And this may sound kind of strange, but there's actually some good arguments for this view. I don't have time to get into all of it, but this has nothing to do with what Jesus did before or after his resurrection, but it's looking back to what he did working through Noah. The third view, this is the right one, because uh, this is my view. Um, kidding. But it's the, you got to be confident what you believe, okay? No, it's the view... This is the view that Jesus, at some point, most likely after his death, after his resurrection, he went and proclaimed victory over fallen angels, or what we call demons. Those are, in my view, who these spirits in prison are. That word spirit in the New Testament, it almost always refers to an angelic being, not people. And we know from the book of Jude that there are actually some demons who are being kept in hell right now. Who, who are they? Who exactly are these fallen angels? We don't know for certain, but it seems that they may have been the angels we read about in Genesis 6-4, which is one of the strangest <laughs> verses in the whole Bible. It talks about demons coming to earth, becoming men, and getting together with women and actually having little demon children. If you don't believe me, go look it up. It's a wild story, and this kind of led to God flooding the world. And so Peter says that these spirits who are now in prison, 
They did not obey in the days of Noah. That's who I think that is. So, so, so this is Jesus proclaiming victory over the fallen angels. But why does Peter include this difficult verse? Well, I believe he does so because he wants the readers back then and today to see the similarities between their situation and Noah's. Look at verse 19 and 20 all together this time. It says, In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Just like these first century believers, Noah lived in a hostile culture. And people must have thought he was crazy building this giant ark and gathering up all these animals. So he too faced opposition. And it wasn't just opposition from people, but it was from Satan. Demons were trying to ruin God's plan by procreating with humans. And yet Noah remained devoted to God. And in the same way that God was patient until his coming judgment with the flood, he is now being patient with a lost world until his coming judgment at Christ's return. So here's what Peter's doing. He's saying, hey, Jesus has already declared victory. Those same demonic beings that sinned against God all that time ago, they know now that it's over. They've been defeated. Jesus has taken a victory lap proclaiming it's finished. Do you remember Noah? All the difficulty he faced? In the same way, yeah, you may face suffering and hostility, but if God could save Noah and his family with little demon babies running around and this crazy situation he's living in, then he can save you from your enemies too. Through your suffering, you too will have victory because of Jesus. And then what Peter does is he connects Noah's ark to baptism. And here we have our second wrestling match with this passage. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you grew up like I did as a Baptist, it should be pretty obvious, the part that makes us sweat a little bit. Peter seems to be saying that baptism saves you. And we know there are some Christians, some denominations who, who do believe that uh, if you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. Was that what Peter's teaching here? No, I, I don't think so. And here's why. First off, that would contradict the entire testimony of the Bible, which consistently teaches that we are not saved by anything we do, that we cannot be good enough, that there's no external act we can perform to save ourselves, that we are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus, period. But the second reason I don't believe that's what Peter's teaching here is because of the whole verse. Peter kind of clarifies what he's trying to say about baptism. How does baptism save you? He says, it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, there's nothing magical about the water of baptism. I don't go up there before the service every Sunday and sprinkle any holy water on it. You know, standing in the baptistry, getting dunked while the preacher says the words, that doesn't make you a Christian. Think about the thief on the cross again. He never got baptized, never went to church, didn't know a single verse. He didn't even pray the sinner's prayer. And he's in heaven. But rather what Peter says, he says, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. When someone is baptized, they are simply expressing what's going on in their heart. 
To appeal to God for a good conscience is to reach out for God's forgiveness. It's to ask for God to save you. It's quite simply what we would call faith. And baptism is an expression of that faith. And this is something I think that gets lost in our Baptist world. No, baptism doesn't save you, but that doesn't make it unimportant. Baptism is very important. It's so important that Jesus himself was baptized and he commanded his disciples to be baptized. Baptism is important because baptism is how we profess our faith to the church and to the world. We are saved through faith in God. And then we announce and demonstrate and declare and proclaim and shout it out that I've been saved by Jesus. That's what we do in the baptismal waters. That's why in Acts 2, when Peter preached that sermon at Pentecost and everybody said, what do we need to do? He said, repent and be baptized. Those two things just go together. And that's why it's our conviction at Blue Valley that baptism should be something done after you put your faith in Jesus and immediately after. You may uh, remember before the pandemic, if, if someone trusted in Jesus, we would baptize them that day in that service. And that's something we, we do hope to continue doing soon. You're going to hear more about that. But it's because baptism is very important. It's our appeal to God. And notice he says baptism corresponds to this. What is the this? Well, he's talking about Noah's Ark. That word corresponds, it's actually an adjective that means pattern or type. Noah's Ark, in other words, was an example that pointed to baptism. How so? Well, this is something that gets lost when we lower our view of baptism. See, when the floodwaters of God's judgment rained down, Noah and his family, they trusted, his, trusted in God. They went into the ark. They shut the door. And the ark saved them from the water. And they stepped off that ark into this new world and a fresh start of humanity. In the same way, when we are baptized, we are acting out our salvation. It's like a play. Going down under the water is a picture of our dying with Christ and being buried with him. The floodwaters of God's judgment symbolically come over us. And then when we come up out of the water, that is a picture of our being raised with Christ as a brand new person. Like the ark, baptism is acting out our salvation by Jesus Again, it's not mystical or magical. It's just water straight out of the faucet. But it's a beautiful picture of what it means to trust in Jesus and to experience his new life. And that's why Peter ends verse 21. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus, we are saved through Jesus and what he did, not by anything we can do. And then we profess and we demonstrate our salvation by being raised out of the water with him. So Peter's reminding these believers, hey, remember your baptism. That's a picture of the victory you already have through suffering. And then he ends with this, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Not only was Jesus crucified and resurrected, not only did he proclaim victory to the spirits in prison, but then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and it says all the powers have been subjected to him. This again would have been a great comfort to these believers to know that their Lord and Savior was not lying in a tomb, that he was not powerless, 
but that he was now seated in power, ruling over all things, including their suffering. Because Jesus was victorious, they knew they would be too. So now that we've, we've walked through this, we've wrestled a little bit, let me give you three things really quickly that we learn about suffering as an exile. Here's the first. Number one, an exile suffering has a pattern. Have you guys ever been uh, whitewater rafting? We have in East Tennessee on the Ocoee River, you can go whitewater rafting. It's, uh, it's cool right now. We have about 40 members of Blue Valley who are in Buena Vista, Colorado, ministering to the whitewater rafting guides that spend time there every summer. And they're doing some of this. But I went for the first time. I was in high school, and I remember being kind of nervous. Like you got out of the helmet and the gear strapped on. You're looking at that river like, oof, you know. But I felt a lot better when I met my rafting guide. Now, he was a pretty interesting guy, a little rough around the edges. But he told us that he had been down that river several thousand times. He knew every rock, every rapid of that river. He knew when to paddle, when to slow down, when to turn, and he knew when to warn us to hang on. And we did. His experience brought me great comfort. And look, the same is true in our suffering. Jesus Christ has gone before us as our guide. He's been down the river of life, and he too knows all the rapids. And now he's guiding us on our journey. And the way he dealt with suffering gives us a pattern to follow. First part of that pattern is obedience. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. He followed him every step of the way, even when it led to the cross. In fact, Jesus suffered because of his obedience. He didn't suffer for being a sinner. He suffered because he honored God. Second pattern we learn from Jesus in suffering is sacrifice. It's so easy when we're in the middle of something terrible going on in life or suffering. It's so easy to become self-focused, to turn in, to block everyone else out. In fact, that's what the world tells us. They say, oh, you just need to take care of yourself first. But Jesus didn't do that. No, Jesus continually gave himself up for the good of others. Even when he hung on the cross, his last breaths, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Third pattern we see in Jesus' suffering is victory. What kept Jesus focused in his suffering was the fact that he knew victory was coming. He knew his suffering would only be temporary. And then would come eternal glory. And friends, the same is true for us. We may suffer in this life, but the pattern is clear temporary suffering will give way to eternal glory. We know what the rapids hold because our guide has been down this river. Second thing we learn about suffering from this passage is this, number two, an exile suffering has a plan. Christians love to say that. Everything happens for a reason. We say that because it's true. It's easy to say. It's hard to believe, especially when you're suffering. But suffering, too, happens for a reason. It is God's plan for his people to suffer, just as it was his plan for Jesus to suffer. Why, oh, why would God let his people experience these bad things? Well, why did he let Jesus suffer? Because suffering is the means to victory. Suffering is how we grow. Suffering makes us more like Jesus. Suffering is for our good if we know Christ. And this, too, brings me great comfort. Some say that suffering and pain is just random, it's just bad luck, or others say it's karma, it's the universe paying you back for what you've done wrong. 
But the Bible says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When we know there's a plan, it gives us hope. Think about Noah. Think of how ridiculous he must have felt. God told him, hey, I'm going to destroy every single person on this planet except for you and your family. So I need you to build a really big boat. Uh, God, how, how, big, how big are we talking here? Well, I need you to build a boat big enough you can fit two of every animal on it. And most scholars believe it took Noah somewhere between 70 and 100 years to build the ark. Think about it. A hundred years building a boat, waiting for the rain. People mocked, they laughed, but he just kept building. He knew, despite how it looked, despite how ridiculous the story sounded, he knew there was a plan, and the plan gave him hope to endure. Listen, friend, when you suffer, knowing that there's a plan, that God is always up to something, will give you the strength to endure. Here's the third and last thing we learn about suffering from these verses. Number three, an exile's suffering has a promise. If Christ has been raised, then we will be raised too. If, if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, then we'll be seated with him too. If Jesus was victorious, then we'll be victorious too. And here's the good news. Jesus was raised. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he was victorious. Those are facts. Because of what Jesus did, the Apostle Paul is able to give us this promise in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Did you catch that? The afflictions we face right now, they're light, they're momentary, and they can't compare to the eternal weight of glory we'll experience one day. Paul also said something similar in Romans 8.18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There it is again. When we compare present sufferings with future glory, it's not even worth comparing. Future glory so far outweighs what we face in this life, we can't even comprehend it. That's our promise. Glory is coming. That's the promise Jesus embraced. As he was beaten with a whip, glory's coming. Crown of thorns on his head, glory's coming. Spit in his face, glory's coming. Hanging on a cross as a criminal, glory, glory is coming. Laid in a tomb, glory's coming. If that was true for Jesus, that's true for you. When the doctor gives bad news, glory's coming. When a relationship's falling apart, glory is coming. When the stresses of life begin to suffocate us, glory is coming. When the pain and depression won't go away, glory is coming. When you don't think you can keep going, glory is coming. When we suffer, there is a pattern, a plan, and a promise always. And that's what keeps us going. Christ's victory through suffering is our victory through suffering. Let's pray.